But we're back in our series this week, Live Like It Matters. And so far we've looked at that it will change your life, it will change your home, and today we're talking about it will change the church. Now, if you're wondering what I'm talking about when I say it will change the church, it will change your life, I'm talking about this powerful, life-changing force that I believe we've all sensed and experienced at different times throughout our life. It's this, this hard-to-describe feeling, but perhaps it was an intimacy with Christ, and you came to Christ, and you were on fire, and you were passionate, and it seemed like you could do no wrong. You were unstoppable. But then, over time, it slowly faded away. Or perhaps you've experienced this feeling in church. You've walked into a church, and it doesn't mean they have the latest and greatest technology. They could be using an overhead projector from the 80s with transparencies, but you're like, there's something different here. They have it. So what is it? How can we hold on to it? How can we get it back if we've lost it? This powerful, life-changing force that draws us closer to Jesus. So let me start by asking this question, and I'm not looking for a show of hands, but how many of you could come up with $100,000 cash by the end of this week if I asked you to? Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, well, I'd never give it to you, and you're out of your mind because that's a lot of money. And with the current economy right now, the cost of living, everything's going up. $100,000 is a lot, and we're just trying to stay afloat. But now think of a person who you love most in the world. A spouse, a child, a close and trusted friend. Think of someone and bring them to mind. And suppose I told you that this person, this loved one, is very sick. Not just a flu bug, but they have less than a month to live. However, the doctors are certain that they will survive if you get them this rare treatment that costs $100,000. What are you thinking now about getting 100000 by the end of the week? If you're like me, suddenly you're thinking, money's not an object. If this treatment will actually cure my loved one, well, then I'll do whatever it takes. I'll sell my house. I'll sell my cars. I'll ask wealthy family members. I'll do whatever it takes to get the money. I'll set up a GoFundMe account. So what changed? Why are you willing to go to such extremes? Well, it's because you became motivated. When I first asked you, you had no incentive. It was like, well, why would I give Kevin $100,000? But in the second scenario, the life and or death stakes of your loved one suddenly made you unstoppable. There was passion. And you see, living like it matters starts with passion. And it's that spark of passion that ignites the fuel for innovation. Suddenly, it's not like, oh, 100,000, we can't do that. It's like, okay, what can we do in order to get that? And that's what I want to step into. That, that's what's driving the, these church leaders to go and reach the indigenous communities. Because... They had that spark of passion. So I feel like we need to ignite that for ourselves, in our homes, in the church, and in the world. 
Because really, have you ever been inspired by someone who lacks passion? Oh yeah, let's go change the world. <laughs> no! <laughs> A ministry that doesn't have it lacks and that lacks passion simply follows the formulas that they've used the year before and the year before that. I remember serving in a ministry, and, and I was wrestling with that, with some of the, the decisions we were making as a leadership team. And my father-in-law came in, and, and he kind of saw what was going on, and he said, although this one particular leader had been in ministry for 10 years, he's like, he doesn't seem to be a seasoned 10-year leader. He's just done the same year 10 times. And people become bored, uninspired, complacent. In fact, when I started there in 2009, we read a book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And it was a great book. But then year after year, I kept hearing in his sermon illustrations about fresh wind, fresh fire. And during COVID, I watched a service online, and I couldn't believe it when he referenced fresh wind, fresh fire. Now, I'm sure that impacted him greatly, but we need that fresh filling. We need to live like it matters so that we can become unstoppable. So now that we're starting to relight this passion in our lives and in our homes, I want us to take a look at how we can do it in the church so that it will transform the church. Author Curry R. Blake says, if your gospel isn't touching others, it hasn't touched you. That is a bold statement. You have to ask yourself, if, if your gospel isn't touching others, those around you, has it really grabbed a hold of you and transformed you? And let's be real, this is what our friends and coworkers and neighbors and those who don't yet know Jesus are asking and looking for. Because they're saying, okay, if you claim to, to have this life, to have this good news, to have this life-transforming power, then let's see it. Show it to me. And this is where the tricky part of it comes into play. Because defining it, pointing to it, is kind of like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's something that can't just be pointed to or an object that you can give someone. It's about a passion for sharing Christ that consumes us in a beautiful way. And that's why you can have two churches next door to one another and one you walk into and it has all the programming and the next one has the same programming, but one can have it and the other one can be lacking it. There's something different. Are we consumed? in that beautiful way to share our love for Jesus? Are you passionate to share Christ? I love this exercise that Pastor Craig Rochelle did with his team. During one training session, he asked them to write on a note card five priorities that would contribute to reaching new people and growing the church. And he had an answer that he was looking for in mind, but he had them all write it down, he collected them, then he started reading them aloud. And there was developing staff, investing and appreciating volunteers, caring for church members, stewarding resources well, creating an evangelistic atmosphere, leading weekend services with excellence. And he says, these are all good ideas and there were some great themes. But he said, in order to grow and reach more people at church, you must have empty seats. 
to grow, you have to have empty seats. It's that simple. And the reason it's so easy to overlook that concept is because we're good as long as we have a seat. As long as we're comfortable sitting in the new padded chairs, we're happy. And I know we don't have that problem just yet with, with bursting at the seams, but I pray that we will. I know that we will. This isn't a large building, and I'm already thinking about, okay, maybe Knox will let us put a portable out back for some of the older kids, and maybe, like, I'm dreaming, and I want to see this place grow, but have you heard of the 80% rule? It says when your church is at 80% or more capacity, people don't feel like there's room for them, which means they, they'll come in one week, but it might not come back the next week because it's just, there's no space for me. But are we willing to give up our seats to allow that to happen? It's an exciting problem to have. And like I said, I pray we get there. But the catch is, are we looking beyond our own seats? Are we looking beyond ourselves? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, a guy asks Jesus, of all the commands, what's the big one? Like, which one matters? Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, who do you love? If you love God, then you should love people. And it's safe to say that if you're struggling to love people, then you're struggling to love God. We're quite comfortable loving people who are like us, loving people when we're comfortable, but we're also called to love those who aren't like us, or perhaps when we're not comfortable. But that's always the more difficult one. You see, when we love deeply, love leads us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. My wife and kids have been asking for a dog for years, and now we have a dog who's almost a year old named Lucy, who is on a mission to chew every pair of shoes that we own. And why did we get Lucy? Because I love my wife and I love my kids. Love made me do it. And when one of my kids asks for the last bit of my Coke, I often give it to them. Why? Because love made me do it. <laughs> and when my kids get sick and throw up in the middle of the night and it gets all over their bed and one has to go in the bath, the, the sheets have to go in the wash, I'm there cleaning it up. And what made me do it? Amanda made me do that one, but <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> but love makes you do crazy things. So who do you love? Do you love people who don't yet know Jesus? If it's going to change our churches, we've got to. What empowered Jesus to suffer greatly, to shed his innocent blood, and willingly offer his life so that we could be free? Love. Love made him do it. So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you have the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1557. Now, I'll be reading from the NLP translation, uh, which I should start using NIV because that's the translation of the Bibles that are here. But you see, life in Jesus' day was very public. 
and most people would leave their doors open during the day, and an open door meant anyone could enter, just kind of come and go. So in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. So what can we learn from this text so that it will change the church? Well, the first thing is that it is desperate for their friends to meet Jesus. These friends were desperate for their friend to meet Jesus. They were passionate. They were motivated. Love made them do it. They knew that Jesus could heal him. How did they know that? Well, it says that they had faith. Maybe they had seen it. Maybe they had experienced it for themselves, or they had heard the story swirling around town. But no matter what it was, they believed Jesus who he, it was who he said he was. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Church, are you desperate for your friends to meet Jesus? You see, for the rest of the crowd that was there that day, they probably had a sincere desire to hear Jesus. Some may have been skeptical, like the religious leaders, but these four friends weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about someone else. For the crowd, the meeting was about them. What could they get? What could they learn? What could Jesus offer them? In modern-day language, could be, well, this church makes me feel better about myself. This church has better coffee. This church has a better kids' program or worship or Bible-based preaching or fill-in-the-blank. And I know these things are being said by uh, well-meaning Christians, but you hear the self-centeredness in these things as they say and, and use these words. And one of the worst phrases today is church shopping. Again, we know what that means, but the words imply being a consumer and looking for a church that will meet my needs. But as Pastor Erwin McManus asked, when have we forgotten that the church doesn't exist for us? We are the church, and we exist for the world. 
Church, are you desperate for your friends to meet Jesus? Do you long for the world to know Jesus? This is what I love about being part of the Alliance, is that it's not just like, let's keep ourselves alive and good and comfortable here, but let's start selling off property so we can do more new ventures across Canada, so we can go up into these indigenous communities, so we can do things across our nation and around the globe. We're part of this movement so that people will meet Jesus. The second thing we can learn from Mark 2 so that it will change the church is that it cuts through the crap. I felt really strange making that slide. <laughs> but you see, these four friends were determined to do everything necessary to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Crowd too big? Let's go to the roof. No opening in the roof? Let's make one. Now, the roofs on these homes typically were flat with beams about three feet apart, and, the, and they were covered with brush, clay, and then packed with manure. So that's why we can say, cut through the crap. <laughs> Craig Rochelle describes the scene like this. Jesus is teaching. He's in it. He's on a roll. He's flowing with the Holy Spirit. A flake of dried poop lands on his head. He looks up. He sees the roof caving in. The homeowner isn't exactly pleased. Suddenly, the light of sun explodes through this gaping hole, shining around the silhouettes of these four guys looking over, about to lower their friend. And Jesus starts laughing with delight. Think about that. Now, the text doesn't say if Jesus laughed or if he giggled or had this confused look on his face, but often we visualize God and Jesus and church and holy sacred things with this seriousness. We can't enjoy it. This is serious. But Jesus doesn't scold them or condemn them. He's not giving them a piece of his mind saying, hey, I was on a roll here. I was, I was preaching. Instead, he sees through to their heart. He sees their faith and he forgives them and he heals this man. And church, if we are going to have it, we need to be willing to embrace the mess. We need to be filled with a passion and a desire to reach the lost at all costs. Are things going to be perfect? Not at all. I can guarantee that. <laughs> but is it worth it? Absolutely. Love cuts through the crap. Love overcomes the obstacles. It's willing to bust through any barriers. Right now, I can hear our kids screaming downstairs. Is this ideal? No. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because it allows us to meet it this time. It, I love hearing our, our kids running around knowing that they're learning about Jesus in ways that they understand. I know last week, there was a couple here, I won't single them out, but they they had a little one with them who was making sounds throughout the service. And I always know, especially for the moms, you feel so bad and you're like, oh, just be quiet, I really want. And I went up to them after and I said, don't ever feel bad for your kid making noise because I would rather be in a church with so much noise than in one that's still and quiet. Because one is marked with life and vibrancy and the other one is slowly dying. Remember, love overcomes the obstacles. And notice this. The first thing Jesus did 
before he healed the paralyzed man is that he healed his greatest brokenness. Jesus forgave his sins. Right before he healed the man, Jesus gave him an even greater gift. Jesus offered him grace and forgiveness. And guys, I've admitted this before. The whole concept and theology of healing is a difficult one, especially with a sister-in-law who is paralyzed from the waist down. But I know she's told me this exact thing before, is that although I may never be physically healed, Jesus has healed me in so many other ways. Jesus then says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man walked home in front of a crowd, standing in awe. Their jaws probably dropped to the ground. And church, you'll know that we have it when people start responding to the grace of Jesus in the same way that people do in this story. They start telling everyone, we've never seen anything like this before. Which brings me to the third thing we can learn from Mark 2 so that it will change the church. It has to be a genuine faith. It is a genuine faith that brings this about. These four friends believed that Jesus was going to heal their friend. They felt it. They believed it. They, they knew it. You could say that they had it. The, this confidence. How often, when you're praying, do you feel that? Do you feel that, yes, God's listening to me, he hears me, and he's going to do what I'm asking? Like I said, I get nervous when it comes to healing. Well, this past summer, I got to go to General Assembly again with our denomination, and they always conclude our time together with a healing service. Four years ago, I received healing myself. I haven't taken medication for my gut pain since the day of that assembly. And coming back, I was still skeptical. I'm like, okay, maybe it's just something passing. Maybe, like, uh, I'll just, before I share too much. Well, then they ended up using my testimony for the healing service. So I was interested to go this year. There was nothing that I was really needing prayer for. I'm just like, I just want to kind of see how the video goes and see, see what else happens. Well, as the service is wrapping up, Pastor Steve, the pastor from Gateway who's leading the healing service, he, he asks those who, who need healing to stand up. And this guy sitting a few chairs down from me stands up and then Steve says, okay, everyone around, stand up and, and put your hands on them and pray for healing. So I kind of get up and I'm like, his name's Roy Snow. He's a pastor up in Barrie. And I'm like, okay, Roy, like, what do you need prayer for? And he's like, well, it's kind of a complicated story, but my daughter hit me in the neck with my truck. So he was a mechanic. She was backing it up. I don't know all the details, but he's like, I haven't been able to move the left side of my neck since May. This is now mid-July. And so we're like, okay, let's pray. Me and two other people are there. And I thought, let's see how it goes. So genuine faith. I had it because I experienced healing. Was I still skeptical? Yeah. So I let the other two guys start praying. We're praying for him and nothing significant's happening. I don't even know the words I used. 
But as I began praying with my hand on his, uh, his other shoulder, not the side that was even healed, or the, not the side that was even sore, my hand became burning hot. And I'm like, whew, am I just getting hot in here? Like, am I nervous? So I stopped and I said, Roy, are you feeling anything? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, well, and then every time I had my hand on him, it was just burning. And I'm like, this is weird. Maybe I'm just like not used to this, but I know that that heat sensation can be part of healing. But anyways, he said he felt nothing. So, okay, let's move on. And that was kind of it until later that night. Roy and I were meeting with some others to go to the home of the pastor who is hosting the assembly. And when I got down into the hotel lobby, Roy came to me and he swung his neck and he's like, Kevin, guess what? I'm like, what? He's like, I can move my neck. He's like, it's healed. He's like, I don't know if this is going to last long or what, but I haven't been able to in two months. I'm like, praise God. Because I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> Other than Jesus touching Roy. Prayer is powerful. Prayer connects us to the creator of the universe, to the God who invites us to call him Father. And prayer changes not only our circumstances, but also how we respond to those circumstances. Because prayer isn't always answered. But I do believe that God changes us as we come to him in prayer too. So that even if the things aren't answered the way we want them to, we will understand. Or perhaps we may not understand but we're willing to trust him. So do you have a genuine faith? Or are you going through the motions? Have you placed your trust in Jesus and have a personal relationship with him? Is it living, passionate, vibrant? Because you know what? If you don't really believe in the power of Jesus to change lives, people will know it. And the opposite's true as well. That if you believe with every fiber of your being that Christ can and will transform lives through the power of his grace, people will sense that too. And they'll feel it. And they'll often come to believe it as well. So like I said at the beginning, has anyone ever inspired you by saying, oh yeah, I know this guy who can change your life? No. No. When you pray and ask God to break your heart for what breaks his, do you mean it? When you pray for healing, do you believe it will happen? When you pray for your neighbors to know Christ, do you actually pray this out of a sincere love for them? Or because, well, I should. What you pray reflects what you believe about God. Do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? Do you genuinely believe that you have his spirit living inside of you and that you have access to his resurrection power? You are forgiven. Through Christ, you've been made new. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, the old you is gone. There is a new you marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit living within you. And if you have nothing else to celebrate this Thanksgiving, thank God for the grace that he gives to us all freely, no matter where you're coming from. You are not your past. You're not what you've done. You're not what others have done to you. You are not who others say you are. You're not even who you say you are. You are who God says you are.
And he says, you're forgiven, a new creation, redeemed, free, a masterpiece, Christ's ambassador, and that you are loved. So friends, let this Thanksgiving be a reminder of God's goodness, his graciousness, and his faithfulness. And let's go out and live like it matters so it will change the church. If you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that for those of us sitting here today that have a genuine relationship with you, but may just be struggling with some of the passion. Reignite that flame. God, help us to see you and experience you in new and fresh ways so that it will transform our lives, our homes, and the church. God, may we become desperate for our friends and our neighbors to know you and to meet you. God, I pray that you continue to use our church and the churches in this community to reach people with your saving grace. God, for anyone who doesn't have a relationship with you or just maybe needs to recommit in their relationship to you, I pray that they take a moment and do that now. That they just say, God, I, I admit and I confess and repent of going my own way. God, I accept your forgiveness. And I pray that you fill me with your spirit and give me new life today. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.